Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 71 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, April 24th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, we are into the last week of the semester. Oh, that is sweet news. Music to my ears. What are you going to do with all that free time that comes open? <laughs> Have a baby. <laughs> Well, I'm not the one having a baby. True. Um, and I suspect that, you know, the, pres- to the, a baby. the president's going to create some work for, for both of us. Oh, yeah. I think so. we'll, we'll still record. We will still record. Maybe maybe the baby will be a special guest. <laughs> that, that, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, it's, it'll, it'll improve the production values of this podcast. That can only go up from there. All right. So here we are, 10 a.m., Tuesday morning, Central Time, April 24th. Bobby, what is going on? Very little. Ooh, well, if we had to talk about something, hmm. I suppose we could talk about so, some brand new hot, hot out of the oven Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, the Supreme Court's actually deciding some cases. Not many, though. Not many. The, 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 the Supreme Constipation continues. Ooh. Oh, how about that? That's your term, not mine. Yeah, well, it is. That, um, that, that's a potential episode title. <laughs> um, I will, well, I, I will say show. today was a good day for Fed Courts professors, although if you've already written your exam, maybe it wasn't such a good day. Uh, certainly, if not, if you're a student. Well, yeah, indeed. Um, so we're going to talk about the Supreme Court news from this morning. Uh, there is a lot to say about Doe versus Mattis, the case involving the U.S. citizen being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq. Lots of developments, Bobby, since last we sat down to record. Absolutely. We have an actual opinion to parse. We have an uh, opinion. We have a brand new appeal to the D.C. Circuit. And, and, and yet, the funny thing is, it's it's a total deja vu. Oh, because no. it's going to be the same right, judges talking about the almost exact same things. Yeah, but I'll be, I'll be sort of pressed that actually this actually changes the whole tenor of the appeal in some interesting ways. But we'll, we'll, we'll force there. them to actually do something. Indeed. So that's we're going to probably spend more time than anyone actually wants talking about that. Um, we have a couple of updates. The capture of Zalmer, uh, apparently uh, the as yet uncaptured 9-11 suspect. So now he's in custody. So we'll talk We'll talk about some of the history there and what it means going forward. We'll Speaking of people linked to the 9-11 attacks, we'll also talk about some litigation uh, relating to Al-Qahtani. In the military commissions where he's moving to have basically um, various sanctions imposed, various discovery provided based on his mistreatment, his abuse, his declining medical condition, etc. So then we'll pivot away from the detention category to in Trumpland. Trumplandia. Because it's Trumplandia. Been a cl- you have to say Trumplandia. Trumplandia. Yes. Oh. So so I I'll just say it's been it's been another quiet, boring week in Trumplandia. Not. Um, we had on Friday the Justice Department turned over uh, FBI Director Comey's memos to the House Judiciary Committee. Bobby, shockingly, minutes after they were turned over to the House. They leaked. I'm shocked and appalled. There's leaking in Washington. There's leaking. Except apparently from Mueller. So we're going to talk about some of the ridiculous memes that have emerged from the Comey memos and how apparently they prove everything to everybody. It's, a, it's a giant Rorschach test. It really is. Um, we're also on Friday. The DNC brought this kind of interesting, kind of strange lawsuit against Bobby Everybody. Oh, it sounded like they brought it against me. Well, not you. <laughs> But the <laughs> RNC, everybody but, right? and not the RNC, the, uh, Russia, the GRU, a whole bunch of private parties, basically the campaign hack lawsuit. It sounds like an episode of, uh, um, what's the what's the reality show where they put them all in a house, take a bunch uh, of B-listers? Survi- uh, Big Brother. Big Brother. It sounds like a bad episode of uh, Big Brother starring Julian Assange, Don Jr., Manafort, Roger Stone, Guccifer 2.0, Papadopoulos, yep. Gates. Oh my God. That would be the greatest reality TV show ever if they could actually get all these people in one place. Uh, so we'll talk about that lawsuit and some of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act issues that it raises. Um, 
And then we'll pivot over and talk about Steve's favorite topic, the special counsel protection bill. Well, apparently it's actually getting marked up by the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday. So there you go. it might be worth saying a few things about where we are and, and what the big questions are. Um, then you want to say a bit about sort of the continuing fallout from the Syria airstrikes? Yeah, there's. Uh, this has been obviously a, a key moment in the either the development or non-development, depending on your view of the USAD Bellum and UN Charter Law. We've talked about that on a previous episode, and we're just going to digress a little bit at the end to draw attention to a really neat uh, project that our friend uh, Beck Ingber and, and some of her colleagues have been uh, putting together co- a collection of state expressions of view or, or lack thereof <laughs> on the legality of that strike. So we'll draw attention to that. And then I think it'll be frivolity time, Steve. Frivolity. So you, you, the, you came to me this morning with an interesting idea for frivolity. Yes, inspired by what was on the radio when I was dropping my kids off from school. Oh, that, that, that old source of inspiration. <laughs> we are going to talk about what counts as a boy band and Billboard's list of the top 100 boy band songs of all time. That's right. You want it that way? (laughs) Oh, my God. There's lots of potential for uh, episode titles. Well, this I promise you, Bobby. (laughs) You're killing me. How do I say goodbye to yesterday? Oh, just stop. Stop. Have we come to the end of the road? Stop. Okay. So, (laughs) where shall we begin? How about... Uh, uh, Let's start with the Supreme Court, right? Speaking of... uh, Boy bands. Speaking of boy bands, although it used to be a boy band, now now it's finally, you know, been gender diversified. I don't know. the, The majority today in Jesner was a boy band. Tell us about this new boy band and the opinion they dropped in just Oh, many opinions. Okay, so um, as folks know, the Supreme Court has been way behind this term. Uh, They issued three opinions this morning. Two of them are actually of interest in the sort of non-Article III patent world. Um, The oil state energy case about when the patent trial and appeals board can hear basically adversarial claims. Our colleague, Melissa Wasserman, I think will be very interested to know that she still has a job, um, right, that they didn't destroy the patent system. Seven to two uh, with the chief and Justice Gorsuch dissenting. The big news, though, in our universe is Jesner versus Arab Bank. So we've talked before about the alien tort statute. This is a 1789 act of Congress that gives the federal courts jurisdiction for suits by an alien for a tort committed in violation of the law of nations. Um, And over the past 30 years, the federal courts have looked to the alien tort statute to allow for really, Bobby, fairly sweeping um, human rights litigation by victims of human rights abuses generally abroad, right, to come into U.S. courts if they're here and if the defendants are here and to sue foreign defendants, foreign corporations, U.S. corporations under the alien tort statute. Um, not to be this is, you know, the Abu Ghraib litigation is basically about the alien tort statute. Um, there have been torture cases under the alien tort statute, so on and so forth. So the Supreme Court has, in 2004, in a case called Sosa versus Alvarez Machine, the court breathed some life into this project, saying that at least if the claim is for a, what we call a use Kogan, a clearly established non-derogable norm of international human rights law, those cases can go forward under the ATS. But in 2012, in the Kiobel case, um, the court took a pretty big chunk out of the statute by saying that as a general rule, it does not apply extraterritorially. Of course, there aren't that many massive human rights abuses on U.S. soil. I say not that many. We might fight about whether it's more than zero, um, right? I mean, certainly there are corporations in the U.S. agreeing to do some shady stuff overseas. Um, so Kiobel tears, it makes it much harder to bring these claims against 
um, any defendant, right, where the claim accrues overseas. And okay. there's a bit of a circuit split over just how much of a connection like do you have to have the center of gravity. If it's, if, it's, if it's all events overseas, clearly out. Right. If it's sort of got a bit of a U.S. connection, then you get into right. line like a, like a U.S. corporation on a U.S. military base in exclusively U.S. territory right. in Iraq. Right. right. That's right. Al-Shamari. Um, okay. Today's case is about corporate liability in general. Um, and what the Supreme Court decided this morning by a five to four vote, um, basically the usual righty lefty lineup with Justice Kennedy writing the majority opinion, is that the ATS actually does not allow for suits against any foreign corporation, regardless of the locus of the tort, right? Regardless of whether the tort occurred here. So let me see if I've got you, you just said that very plainly. Let me just make sure I'm yeah, tracking you right. Yeah. So just corporations just categorically out as defendants, individuals, foreign, cor- foreign corporations, oh, foreign corporations. So so what's interesting is the case had been sent up to the Supreme Court on the question of corporate liability. Period. And what the court has handed back is a we're not foreclosing or forswearing U.S. corporate liability. Did they did they leave that untouched yes. or did they say they're in? No, they they just they just said with the that there's a, that there are unique concerns where the defendant is a foreign corporation, implying of course that those concerns won't be present where it's a U.S. corporation. Okay, but a foreign individual could still be the presumably. Defendant. I mean, so 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 in effect, right? What this means is you can no longer sue, say, a foreign bank because it has a strong physical presence in the U.S. Right? Even if under Kiobel the claim still would have been viable because there was enough of a connection between the underlying tort, right, and the United States. So this tears out another big piece, right, from the ATS, where now it's basically only going to be available for claims where the tort itself touches and concerns the United States and where the defendant is a person or a U.S. corporation. Huh. Okay. So what's the underlying rationale? Was it defended as a matter of statutory interpretation, congressional no. intent, no. or the overriding equities of foreign relations Equities, concerns. foreign relations. So so there's a di- so here's where we see a bit of a divergence among the five justices in the majority. So Justice Kennedy writing f- at least the majority opinion is just no foreign corporate liability. The why is where we see some fracturing. Okay. So for Kennedy, Chief Justice Roberts, and Justice Alito, um, what you just said is a lot of what's going on, right? The equities, foreign policy interests, concerns about you know federal courts interfering with important you know U.S. foreign relations concerns. Is, is any of that specific to corporations no. as a type of no. entity as opposed no. to individuals? I mean, one could imagine that a former head of state, for example, right, yeah. would be even more sensitive when it came to those kinds right. of considerations. That's sort of what I was thinking. Um, it's, I, 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 I'm not going to defend this opinion. Sure. Um, now, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch both wrote separate concurrences that I think would have gone further. And so I think we see a bit of why this case took since October to be right. decided, where I think they would have probably gone pretty far toward eliminating all corporate liability, not because of foreign policy concerns, um, but because insofar as you're going to look to international law as a source of liability, we should also look to who are proper defendants under international law, right? Corporations actually aren't usually proper defendants under international law, even though we are comfortable in the U.S. thinking of them as juridical persons. So much more sort of a structural, you know, sort of categorical view from those two concurring justices. And then a pretty strongly worded dissent by Justice Sonia Sotomayor on behalf of herself um, and the other three uh, more progressive justices, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan. So 
big deal for human rights litigation, big deal for human rights accountability in U.S. courts. I think, you know, this is in many ways just the latest in the death by a thousand cuts of the alien tort statute. And is it fair to say then that the justices were not all singing in harmony? They were not all singing in harmony. Okay, I had to do it. Oh, I'm Bobby. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's what was... Um, I should say, decide today. Um, we should note, just because it's going to happen before we next record, of course, tomorrow is the last argument session of the Supreme Court's term. Um, and the big case, of course, is the travel ban. Oh, yeah. Um, and so travel ban 3.0 finally gets its day in the Supreme Court tomorrow. Um, you know, I think it's going to be, well, fascinating. To see yeah, I, I believe I saw that they're going to put the audio out. Same day audio. Hour. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, you'd think like, well, how... <laughs> How hard is that? I mean, it's not. look at us. We're complete jokers. We're able to get, we're able to get this out within an hour of finishing it. Um, uh, how nice that they'll do that. Maybe they can make a habit of it. Well, as I said before, right? I mean, I think it's nice that they're doing it in exceptional cases, but the fact that they can do it in exceptional cases... Just proves there's no reason not to do it every time. That's right. It's, I, the, the, every case is exceptional to somebody. And just to, just uh, like Del Masi. Uh, and just to, just to, <laughs> yeah. well, just so folks know, the, the, nor, the current practice for the Supreme Court is to release the audio from a specific week's argument session at about noon on Friday. Um, and so, you know, that means if a case is argued Monday morning, there's no audio of it till Friday afternoon. Um, and the idea here is that for to help disseminate media coverage, um, same-day audio, you know, was helpful for news broadcasts, for radio shows, just for ordinary listeners to figure out what's going on. I think it's long overdue that the court just does this as a general practice. And so, you know, and for those who are going to be watching this tomorrow, obviously there'll be a, a lot of a lot of media attention. One thing to look for from the point of view of issues of lasting significance for national security law, um, will this be a case where there is a departure from more traditional practices of deference to the executive branch in terms of making factual claims uh, relating to foreign affairs and national security? Will it be a case where it, it is those sorts of concepts are applied in the usual fashion. If there is a departure, will it be sort of a one-off, kind of uniquely Trump tweet-specific right. kind of so, departure? So, so, I mean, if, if we think that the key justices are the Chief Justice, Justice Kennedy, Justice Breyer, right, the three justices maybe closest to the center in both mm -hmm. directions, um, I'd be very surprised if any of those three wanted to make this case about the president's personal statements. I think right? they'll be at pains to try to find ways to avoid. And so that's why that. that's why I think the real tell the real thing that I'm going to be looking for with your argument is from those three especially. Yeah. How many of their questions are statutory, right? Because the way to avoid making this case about Trump um, is to make it about the executive order not being consistent with the underlying statute. Because if it's consistent with the statute, then you have to get to the arguments for why, even though it is statutorily valid. Um, it still represents unconstitutional religious discrimination. That's that's a good way to look at it. So uh, stay tuned. We'll certainly be talking about that one next Quite. week. Quite. Um, all right. Speaking of interesting court hearings yeah. coming up this week, Bobby, a lot happened in Doe versus Mattis, and right. we're privy to most of it. And so we sh we shouldn't assume, even though we talk about Doe v. Mattis like all, every, the time. all the time, and <laughs> it's, we're going to rename the podcast the Doe v. Mattis podcast. Um, we should do a real quick recap. That could be moot for, pretty soon for the sake of any new listeners. Who Maybe out there. All right. So, so who's John Doe? John Doe is a uh, U.S. citizen, but also a Saudi citizen. He's a dual U.S. Saudi citizen, captured by Syrian Democratic forces or Kurdish forces in Syria. Um, Although there's, there's some claim that he turned himself in, but somehow came into the custody of he, SDF forces. One thing's for sure: yes. he was he went there to Syria, was there for several years or for, for a year or so. I forget the exact yep. period of time. Yep. There's and, some dispute as to why. 
he he claims here, let's give the quick uh, presses of it. So he claims that he was basically an ad hoc sort of free freelance. Did you say presses? I did. Pressy. Pressy. Was I mispronouncing things? I mean, not, not that I can, you know, not that I can talk. Hey, you know, I'm just a country lawyer. Well, this is this is Austin. We we mispronounce everything in Austin. Like uh, Guadalupe road names. Guadalupe. Yeah, here's an issue: Is it a mispronunciation if it's the tradition of a place to call it a certain way? Like when I lived in Winston Salem, yeah. there's this lovely neighborhood, uh, Buena Vista, but that's uh-huh. not what they called it. It was Buena Vista. Ah. And and you know who who was I as an outsider from San Antonio to say, hey, you're pronouncing it wrong? Who was I as someone who actually knows how Spanish is spoken? But you know, if you'd been there. 100 years what what's the right way anyways uh, uh press <laughs> whatever it is here's the deal uh doe says or through his lawyers it's it's been suggested that his story is that he was an ad hoc freelance journalist trying to find out what was going on life under the islamic state and then w- once there gets dragooned into performing various roles including armed roles uh for the islamic state and was eager to get out etc uh and then when he finally got the chance he ends up at a checkpoint the sdf or kurdish forces whichever it is um, grab him, and then he ends up turned over to the Americans once it's clear he's and, in. And, and this is all last September. Yes, and so he's been in U.S. military custody ever since. The US, Which is over seven months. Just The to be. U.S. version of the story is that this is a guy who was, by dint of evidence from his social media activities, very, very supportive of the Islamic State, e- eager to go be part of it, went to great lengths to get in there, voluntarily became an armed member of the Islamic State, may or may not have had a change of heart along the way, but in any event, uh, once things started going south for the Islamic State territorially, he tried to sneak out, got caught, and is in U.S. custody as an enemy combatant. So there's an underlying habeas corpus litigation before Judge Chutkin about the legal and factual grounds for that detention. Which, by the way, took a while to get off the ground because there was this preliminary fight about whether the ACLU could even represent him as his next friend. That's right. So we've had these waves, sort of one point. <laughs> the first wave was, can, there, can the ACLU represent him? Eventually... The court obliged the government to ask him that, you right. know, does he want them to be his next friend? And, of course, he said yes. And so now we're at wave two, which is supposed to be about the merits of the litigation. But it's all kind of gotten sidetracked because there's a third wave of, of the case, a third layer. I like yep. to talk about these multi-layer Indeed. cases. <laughs> the and dip. The dip. We have a three-layer dip here. The the three or third or fourth layer together is um, it was pretty clear once the case kind of broke out in the open that the U.S. government wanted to transfer him if possible, since it looked like it was going to be hard to get together court admissible evidence to prosecute him in the U.S. And you can't just hold him abroad forever because we're not going to be abroad with detention facilities forever. Uh, indeed, he's he's sort of in this. We don't know if it's class of one or class of a few, but it's sort of this uniquely small scale overseas detention right. setup we've got. And we've been running for all this time. So what's happened is that uh, he. Through his attorneys, asked for 72 hours notice before transfer. While, while, while the merits of his detention are being litigated, right? So and, and just to be clear, right? I mean, we've we've talked a bit ad nauseum, but this is a big, you know, as yet unanswered legal question, right? No court has yet opined on the interaction between the 2001 authorization for the use of military force and ISIS. Now, you know, you've made the argument, I think, quite powerfully that ISIS is obviously covered by the statute. I've suggested that at least where a U.S. citizen is concerned, you know, it's not obvious even if it might actually come out that way. Right. So huge things turn on this because it has implications for – potential implications for the larger claim that the entire conflict with the the Islamic State is justified by statute. Okay. So so that – so while while the second layer, right, the merits of his detention have been briefed and they've been fully briefed now for about seven weeks. Right. And let's pause here and let's hit that point right now. It's been almost two months – 
The court needs to go ahead and rule. No one thinks the court is getting the last word on this. It's clearly going to go to the circuit. Judge Chutkin. Well, if, unless it's moot by then. Unless it's moot, right. But go ahead and rule. Right. I mean, the, so, so, so wholly apart from what we're about to get to, which is everything that's happened in the last week, there is this increasingly glaring omission by the district court of a merits ruling. Now, it's not just that it's been six or seven weeks since the briefing on the Habeas Petition was completed. I mean, let's be clear. It's been seven months Right since the detention began, without even a preliminary ruling by a district court saying nothing of appeals. Right. Um, in contrast, right in the Jose Padilla case, so Jose Padilla was a U.S. citizen, picked up an enemy combatant in 2002. Um, in Padilla's case, the district court ruled five months right into his military detention, and that was back when there was even more fighting about jurisdiction, about the role of the courts. And here it ought to come quicker because the way that the litigation's unfolded on the merits, ACLU has basically reserved the dispute on the facts yep. and asked for a ruling on just the law, effectively 12B6 style, taking right. the government's allegations as true. The question is, is a citizen Islamic State fighter detainable and, under the AMF? And you and I both agree that whatever happens with the transfer point, which we're about to get to, right, um, having even a judicial ruling on the legality of his detention would be incredibly valuable, not just to the parties in shaping the transfer conversation, but also to, you know, the government and to we scholars in trying to figure out Going forward, what are the rules and what's covered? Well, and I would add it's, it's an important part of the interbranch dialogue yep. as Congress is sitting here considering whether to act on this draft AUMF renewal bill. Right. Of course highly okay. relevant yep. for this. All right. So layer one was, can this case even go forward? Yep. Right. And it is. Layer two is, is Doe lawfully detained? That has legal and factual complexities. But the most important point for now is that is seemingly on hold. Yeah, it's fully briefed and it's just sitting there. Right. Okay. Because all the action in the last week has been on layer three, which it's has two pieces. Layer three, as you already said, is the transfer question. Right. Uh, so can, there's, there's there's an A and a B. Right. Part A is, can the court properly, has the court properly insisted on 72 hours advance notice before a transfer? And then layer B is, can the court actually bar a transfer so this, if, this, this yeah, piece, right. if upon notice, the court then sort of weighs in on, is the transfer lawful? So we already had the 72-hour notice ruling, which was appealed interlocutory to the D.C. Circuit. And a few episodes back, we reviewed the interesting oral argument, which really kind of focused a lot on the underlying question of whether the, you know, the, the notice isn't a legitimate obligation if the court has no power to transfer. Right. So they talked a ton about the power to ban transfer at that hearing. And we've been kind of wondering, you know, would they quickly rule on that? They haven't ruled yet. And so while that's pending, the government cut a deal with Saudi Arabia. Oh, is that a secret? <laughs> wait, oh, Bobby, wait, am I not wait, supposed to say that? Wait, you just, you just spilled the beans. <laughs> okay, this is great. We got a comment on this. So maybe we talked about this last week. I don't remember. But so they've been really careful up to this point to not it, not publicly acknowledge who they're talking to about transfer, even though it has to be either Iraq, who has possible criminal prosecutorial equities, or Saudi Arabia, where he's a citizen and actually lives lived most of his life. Well, wait, and, has, and Judge Chuck had even said, right, on the record, in the public part of one of the hearings last week, that the question is over his repatriation. Right, right. So okay. it's obviously Guys, Saudi Arabia. the cat is out of the bar. And if it wasn't, I think one of the Bad. briefs in a footnote actually had an unredacted reference to the Saudis. Well, so and, it's right, the Saudis. And I, mean, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. I, I sort of reverse constructed a redacted citation. Yeah. Right? Um, oh, right, right, right. right yeah, yeah. To, which which, yet, which yet, is only relevant for... For return of someone to... The, so listen, I, I don't understand why we are still pretending that we don't know what this is about. Yeah. The, the government is trying to transfer him back to Saudi 
Saudi Arabia. Right. And so so the deal is that they've now got some kind of deal in place, right. and they duly gave the re- currently required 72 hours notice. Last Monday night at 7.56 p.m. Eastern Time. And so everything kicks into high gear. Doe is resisting the transfer. Right. And so... Uh, Principally on Valentine grounds. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the substantive ob- objection to the transfer. There were two possibilities, and they're really, they seem to be advancing just the one. But, well, actually, let's let's know there are three lines of argument, only two of which ought to play a role here, but we'll see. Um, one possibility that's not rearing its head so far as I can tell is the fear of torture if transferred argument. That seems not to be part of the discussion. So we'll note that we'll set it aside. Secondly, clearly uh, a proper topic is the Valentine debate. The Valentine debate is this. In 1936, in the Valentine decision, the Supreme Court said the government cannot or remove from the United States, from the United States, an American citizen to France to face prosecution there absent a treaty or statute providing positive legal authority justifying such a transfer. So think of it as sort of a, a species of your due process rights um, not to be transferred away from the country into the custody of another country absent some statutory or treaty framework. Um, the Valentine Rule. There needs to be some express authority. Here's the catch. Uh, in Munaf, the 2008 Supreme Court decision, you didn't have that, or at least the possible grounds for saying that you had it were not why the court allowed the U.S. military to transfer two American citizens to Iraqi custody in circumstances where, like John Doe, they were held by the military in Iraq. Um, in that case, and I'm going to read a little bit from what the court said in Munaf. This is the, the majority opinion. Valentine is readily distinguishable. It involved the extradition of an individual from the United States. This is not an extradition case, but one involving the transfer to a sovereign's authority of an individual captured and already detained in that sovereign's territory. And it goes on to talk about the fact that the Iraqis had criminal jurisdiction to prosecute this guy for crimes. And indeed, the, the American military ostensibly was holding him on their behalf. So both Valentine and Munaf can be distinguished and probably should be distinguished. And the hard work that's waiting for the courts to do here is grappling with where the interesting John Doe fact pattern, right. which is not like Valentine, but also not like Munaf, right. which way should the doctrine go? And it's, and it's, I think, kind of foolish to pretend that any existing case clearly governs this. We need to wrestle with, the courts need to wrestle with in this strange mix where, on one hand, he wasn't within the U.S. He was voluntarily abroad in the combat zone. Though it wasn't Iraq, it was Syria next door, but he was in the combat zone. On the other hand, this isn't a transfer to the local authorities for prosecution. It's a transfer to a third-party sovereign. On the other hand, it's, it's his country. Yes, America technically is his country too, but he's a citizen of both. They have strong – just as Iraq and Munaf had a sovereign's interest in prosecution – the Saudis have the same sort of sovereign interest in him that we've but got, they're not, but they're not asserting it. I mean, I think this is like well, I, they are now, or if they've asked for him to come back. But I they mean, have, but but I mean, Judge Chuckin. I mean, uh, so Judge Chuckin. So let's just fast forward. So Thursday night, right before the seventy-two hour window is about to expire, Judge Chuckin issues an injunction, right, barring um, uh, Doe's transfer. Um, it's technically a preliminary injunction, although she says, "I'm enjoining this until a higher court 
reverses it. Right. So which it, sounds like a permanent it's a, injunction a du- a to me. A durable and ongoing preliminary injunction. It doesn't really matter. I mean, she, the government, all the government cared about was that it was an injunction, not a TRO, because then it would right. be clearly appealable. And, and the centerpiece of it, let me, before we get to the merits yeah. of what happens there, let me just flag the third thing that sort of lurks in the background. So clearly the Valentine rule was central to her holding. In her discussion of likelihood of success in the merits, it's about Valentine, and she, she rejects Munaf and says, look, you know, the Valentine rule applies. And just to, to sum up for the sake of clarity here, the basic legal question is, does the Valentine rule apply? And if so, is there a positive legal authority? Now, no one's claiming there's a positive legal authority here. There isn't one. So the only question is, does the Valentine rule apply? She says, no. It, uh, it, it, she says, yes, it does. Munaf, the exception, doesn't extend to this circumstance. Therefore, the Valentine rule prohibits transfer. Um, there's a third possible argument that ends up showing up in her opinion, and I really wish it hadn't because I, I think it's a confusing factor. That's the possibility that maybe the transfer should be banned if you believe that what's going on here is an attempt to defeat the underlying merits litigation by getting a third party sovereign to engage in constructive or proxy detention. Right. In other, in other words, you. right. In other words, that the transfer is a pretextual way it's of avoiding sham. the merits. Now, exactly. now I, there are t- I, I see two different problems with that argument. The first is if only she were in a position to make that argument go away by oh I don't know deciding, deciding the, the merits. merits of his habeas petition. Right. But even if not, I mean, even assuming that there's some reason why it's taking this long. Um, that's circular, right? I mean, that's that's bootstrapping. It's saying that the reason why um, I can block his transfer is because you're only transferring him to prevent me from reach, from ruling on the merits of his habeas petition, the whole purpose of which is to get him out of U.S. custody. So I think the better – I mean, we talked about this on Twitter. I think the better argument is not that it's interfering with her ability to reach the merits. I think the better argument is that it's interfering with her ability, right, to review the legality of the transfer – if right. the government can transfer without her, you know, without this notice. I, I think that, you know, so the reason we're talking about this is that in her discussion of irreparable injury, instead of saying what I would have expected her to say, which is, well, I've ruled that the Valentine rule applies. So obviously, by definition, transferring him injures him because you're, you're turning him over in violation of his constitutional rights not to be turned over. Right. Full stop. There doesn't need to wait, be a further discussion. Wait, no, 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 there's one, one last sentence, right? And once he's in foreign custody and no longer in the U.S., actual or constructive custody, I lose jurisdiction and I therefore lose the ability to say that his transfer is unlawful. Well, see, I don't think you even have to go there because yeah. on this issue, jurisdiction for what? Not the right, underlying right. merits to prevent the transfer. It's, so, so it, the harm is the transfer. You and I are saying the same thing, yeah. right? That if one agrees with Judge Chutkin that there's a Valentine problem here, and I agree with you that there's a little bit of daylight, that this is not governed, yeah. right? But if on a blank slate, sure. right, you believe that indeed there's no affirmative legal authority for this transfer and that that is conclusive. Then of course there's irreparable harm. And of, course, and of course the injunction is correct. Exactly. And I agree with that completely. You, I, I think I would extend Munaf, whereas I'm not sure you would. Right. But I completely agree that reasonable minds can disagree on this. It's not determinate. But, so, but, but, that if, but that the merits, but that here, as is, not, as is usually but not always the case, yeah. here, right, your rough assessment of the merits is, is conclusive of the entitlement to an injunction. Right, on the Valentine issue. Yes. And I think we both agree that it's a mistake and inappropriate to conflate that with the underlying merits to the legality of detention. I think it's important, and there's there's a good justification for you and I to, we seemingly are beating a dead horse, but during that earlier oral argument about the 72-hour rule, and in these opinions, there are two of them, from Judge Chutkin, both then and now, um, 
there is this persistent reference back to the possibility that this issue in some sense turns on the underlying legality of the detention, the underlying merits, and that there might be some notion that you can't allow a transfer because then the court loses the chance to weigh in on the legality of the underlying merits. That's wrong. And the court needs the circuit yep. when it is going to hear yep. argument this Friday. Friday, Friday at 9.30. We are urging y'all, don't worry about that. <laughs> right. Focus on the Munaf versus Valentine so let's, so let's talk about Friday. So let's talk about Friday. So so the same panel, right, judges uh, Srinivasan, Henderson, and Wilkins. Um, maybe Henderson will be there this well, time. Okay, so Henderson wasn't there last time, and it was unexplained, but they said Henderson's going to participate, just isn't here. Presumably Henderson will be there this time. If not, eh. what do you? What would you make of that? Just, I mean, she Judge Henderson spends a lot of her time not in D.C., and so she is often away. For, right when it's an unscheduled, when it's an argument that wasn't scheduled ah, okay. weeks or months out, I think it's often hard for her to change her travel schedule around. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I'll save editorial commentary oh, yeah, on that for another no, okay, time. Yeah, yeah. But it is the same panel, and so ostensibly the the what happened is um, late Friday that panel issued an order in which they consolidated the two appeals. So now they have jurisdiction over both appeals. Perfect. In which they scheduled expedited briefing on the first round is due this afternoon. Right. This is a this is a hell week for all the attorneys involved. Yes. Uh, 5 p.m. today is the first round of briefing and then 5 for PM, both. The 5 p.m. Thursday is the response, and then the oral argument is 9.30 Friday morning. So somebody gets an all-nighter. But now let's be clear here. I mean, I think, so the question that's now before the D.C. Circuit is whether this specific transfer should be enjoined, right? To decide that question, the D.C. Circuit will have to say, right, something about the intersection between Munaf and Valentine as applied to Saudi Arabia. Maybe indeed they'll even do us a solid and tell us it's Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> you know, what I dread is that they'll say, well, we're going to have to have most, a if closed not all, session. this in closed session because we don't want to reveal. I think it's distinctly possible. And at that point, I want to say, everybody knows it's Saudi. That's the title of this episode. Everybody, everybody knows, knows it's Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. That's awesome. That is totally the title of this episode. Well, um, it'll it'll spare us a lot of listening, but, but it'll but, be too bad. But here's the thing, right? So assume that that, assume the panels focus on that specific question. There's a scenario in which if they rule for the government and allow this transfer to go forward, that actually moots the first appeal, right, which is whether Judge Chutkin was entitled to require 72 hours notice in general. So if the, go- if the oh, court yeah. says, you know, no, it, it should, right? right? If the court says this transfer can go forward, there is no reason then to reach out and decide whether the underlying 72-hour notice requirement was but, but I wouldn't, permissible. But so I would question, would you vacate it? Because the, the deciding, deciding that the Saudi transfer can go forward doesn't mean that the 72-hour notice was wrong. What if the transfer had turned, the notification turned out to be, hey, we're transferring uh, them to, uh, you know, fill in the blank, a separate country that raises a distinct set of issues right. that don't fit whatever exception to uh, Valentine might come up well, or might raise no, pre- I mean, presumably the panel is going to say, right, our analysis is limited to the specific transfer yeah. that we understand is at issue here. Yep. All right. So I all, think- all this to say, right, I mean, yeah. I think it's entirely possible that by this time next week, we have at least a preliminary ruling. I mean, the, right, the, the court appeals is going to move fast because if they, if they think the government should be allowed to transfer him, they're going to want to let them do it right away. Of course, then um, Doe emergency would have two appeal. options, yeah. right? Doe would be able to seek emergency rehearing on Bonk from the D.C. Circuit and or go directly to the Supreme Court. So, right. so this, we haven't heard the end of it yet. This could get messier before it gets cleaner. Meanwhile, Judge Chuckin, who now has nothing to do this week, right? <laughs> At least in this case. Um, hey, she, do us a solid. She may have other cases, but right. not ones we're following. So right. hey, who cares? Well, she has the immigration abortion case, which is a huge kerfuffle. All right. But but dear Judge Chuckin, I don't I know you don't listen to this podcast, but if your clerks Maybe. do, do Maybe. us a solid. Publish the opinion on whether he's lawfully detained or not. You may you may not have a chance to by this time next week. 
All right, so watch this space. Now, uh, speaking of detainees, oh, we've yeah. got we've got other detainees out there. I, I mentioned a moment ago that the U.S. arguably is only holding in, in the Islamic State theater, uh, Iraq and Syria. We're holding at least John Doe, maybe not anyone else. But there are hundreds of Islamic State fighters held by Syrian Democratic Forces. And they picked up a new one the other day. And it was no one less than Mohammed Haider Zamar, who in the early years after 9-11 was a much more familiar name. This person's been in U.S. custody, at least semi, before. Semi. So here, here's the deal. Uh, Zamar is widely described as sort of the, uh, the, the uh, in Hamburg, where the 9-11 cell in Hamburg, including Mohammed Atta, Ziad Jara, uh, Ramzi bin al-Shib, and, and, and more, um, Zamar was an, a veteran of the Mujahideen experience against the Soviets in Afghanistan and was a radicalizer and was living at times with these guys and if not directly involved in recruiting them into this plot was certainly someone who was generally radicalizing them and encouraging them into uh, violent jihad and may well have had more detailed operational involvement in the preliminary stages of the 9-11 plot. So this is a seriously important figure. Um, he is a uh, Syrian by birth, uh, eventually renounced his Syrian citizenship, was in Germany, became a German citizen, um, traveled around after 9-11. The Germans at one point brought him into court, but eventually uh, those proceedings didn't go anywhere. The, the Germans had a lot of trouble trying to proceed in a criminal prosecution mode against a handful of extremists like Samar in those early years. He ends up in Morocco, I believe, and gets seized by the local authorities. And the CIA and Moroccan intelligence services together had him for a while. The CIA rendered him to Syria early on. He's prosecuted in Syria, gets a sentence, is in jail in Syria when the civil war breaks out. And at some point, the Assad regime does a big prisoner exchange with uh, some Islamist forces, and, and Zamar is released. So he gets out after all that, and now he's been captured. And so, the, so he's not the only one. There are at least 400-something other significant Islamic State-related, uh, significance may be the wrong word, but there are 400-something Islamic State fighters of interest that SDF is holding. And as we've repeatedly said on this program, uh, does anyone really think that 10 years from now, the SDF is still in Syria controlling territory and running detention centers? Something's got to be done with these people. And there's an ongoing serious diplomatic food fight underway very quietly behind the scenes, but really importantly, about whether for the many of those detainees who are Europeans, including this guy, right. he's German, right. uh, are they able and willing to take these people back and, and do something about them? Um, lots of complexities there. And what part of whatever hangs this and part of what intersects for the United States is with the question of whether the president ever will begin bringing or authorizing uh, the bringing of detainees to Guantanamo. And so whether Zamar is in that category, hard to know. But in his case, we already know that Germany considered or tried a prosecution and didn't get anywhere with it for lack of uh, concrete evidence of, of a kind sufficient to, to make a case in Germany. And there's no reason to think that's changed, although I guess now you'd be able to say, well, he's now you can throw in some kind of involvement with the Islamic State. Maybe that makes it easier. But that's that's one to watch. And so are all these other ones. Steve, anything else on that? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's just it's... <laughs> 
I mean, I, we're, we talk about this all the time, right? Just how, you know, there are still detainees being picked up in various places around the world, and there's no discussion even of moving them to Guantanamo, right? I mean, there's no, the Trump administration isn't saying we need these people back in the U.S. custody so we can send them to Guantanamo. The Delta Guantanamo hasn't moved since President Trump's inauguration. It's still, you know, solidly grounded at 41. Right. Well, you know, the, I guess the point is that Everyone in the United States, from the parochial perspective of our own policies, we talk about how, well, we don't do detention anymore. We, there hasn't been detention as part of counterterrorism for, you know, basically a decade now, but except for the legacy cases. But it's totally not true. There's detention. It's just run through and administered right. by and, and is the property of all the territorial states in which these people are being captured for the most part. So that raises an interesting question, right? So we've been, you know, a couple of our listeners have asked us to talk a bit about some of the reporting in the last week or two on the sort of shuttering of the State Department's office of, you know, detainee resettlement and some of the issues that have come up with detainees being transferred from, you know, former Guantanamo detainees being sent from one country to another country where bad stuff may be happening to them. Does the U.S. have some responsibility, right, once these guys are actually out of our hands? So this is precipitated by a Char- uh, Charlie Savage story, wasn't yep. it? Or, yep. or was, was it Charlie? Or was it, or was it Eric Matt? Schmidt? It might have been Eric. Um, we're sorry. Guys. Boy, speaking uh, of a boy band. But it was a New, <laughs> a New York Times boy band. Charlie, Charlie Eric, Eric, Matt Apuzo, Mark Mazzetti. Oh, my God. I hope some of them are listening. Mike Schmidt. <laughs> a journalistic boy band. Um, I don't know if any of those people can sing. I don't know if they listen to our podcast. They certainly will stop after that. <laughs> okay, so there's a story about how a couple of Gitmo tra- uh, transferees from years back who'd been resettled in Senegal. Uh, Senegal kind of quietly, not long ago, booted them out to Libya. And then once in Libya, they were moved around and came into the uh, within reach of a guy who uh, – a, a local militia leader who seems to have seized them. And now no one knows what's happened to these guys. Um, it's it's a story about this question of what happens after the United States lets them go. And Steve, I take it you're 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 pointing out how there are possible further chapters in the story after a detainee is released, and you're saying this inflects backwards on the U.S. legal obligations on the front end when deciding to release somebody. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah, I mean, just and 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 also, I mean, I think there, this is why I tend to care a lot about these transfer cases, right? Because. You know, there's certainly we can't expect the U.S. government to be on the hook for what happens to a detainee 10 years and two countries later. Right. I mean, part of releasing them is we are absolving ourselves of formal responsibility for what happens. But at least the initial circumstances of the release, we do tend to have a fair amount of say. Right. In the circumstances, in conditions, perhaps in obtaining diplomatic assurances right from the receiving state. John Doe, negotiations with the Saudis, no doubt all about what you guys going to do. Exactly. And how much you can sort of commit the U.S. To promising right on the front end, and I just think that like federal courts tend to be a bit dismissive of these concerns on the theory that ten years from now there's nothing we can do about it. And my response is, well, that's true ten years from now, but at the moment that the prisoner is still in U.S. custody, there certainly is something you can do about it, right? You can impose at least some conditions on the U.S. government with regard to the transfer. The thing is, you know, the more the more you call into question the diplomatic assurances piece, the more you raise the bar on the ability of the U.S. to release a person who they've got in custody, yep. the more it becomes unpleasant or undesirable to detain them in U.S. custody in the first place. It's part and parcel, one small part of this larger drive to have someone else do all the detention. And there is this interesting question from both a security perspective 
in thinking about the SDF losing control of these yep. guys eventually, which is sooner or later going to happen. Uh, or from the rights perspective and, and pondering, what is life like when you're detained by the Iraqis or the SDF instead of even at Guantanamo? Are you really, which, which would you really be at if you were the detainee? Um, it seems like it may be a suboptimal situation. It makes perfect sense from a from the perspective of policymakers not wanting these frictions, but you wonder whether it's really the optimal result. Um, all right, well, speaking of detainees. Al-Qahtani, right? Al-Qahtani, so, and uh, speaking of people involved in the 9-11 plot. Indeed, so Al-Qahtani has actually filed this new claim in the D.C. District Court, so out of the military commission. Right, this is more under the habeas rubric, not the prosecutorial rubric. Correct, where basically what he's saying is that, um, so the U.S. acknowledges that he was tortured. The U.S., um, Al-Qahtani says he suffers various psychological and physical ailments that cannot be treated while he's in Guantanamo. So he's requested that the U.S. either repatriate him to Saudi Arabia. Oh, wait, now we can say it's Saudi Arabia. Um, or that the U.S. should set up a so-called mixed medical commission as provided by, I think it's Section 312 of AR 190-8, the Army Detention Regulation. And the U.S. has said, no, we can handle this. We can provide you with all the medical treatment you need at Guantanamo. You're not entitled to either of these types of relief. He has now filed a motion to compel at least the latter, the creation of this independent medical commission with Judge Collier as part of his habeas petition in the D.C. District Court. Is it clear that the court, through its habeas jurisdiction, has jurisdiction that reaches this issue, which is not a, it's not directly a release issue, but it maybe gets you there under, under his theory. So least. in Amr versus Obama in 2014, the D.C. Circuit assumed without deciding that conditions claims could be brought right, uh, through habeas petitions. Um, but then it went out of its way to say, but the standard is pretty high, the bar is pretty high, right, and the government only has to meet what's called the Turner versus Safley test, which is a very deferential test that allows the government to provide far less stuff and services and care mm -hmm. to prisoners um, than to ordinary individuals. Of course, I think there's a very good argument that Guantanamo, that Turner versus Safley shouldn't apply to Guantanamo. These guys have not been convicted of crimes, right? The justification in Turner is that these are people who have forfeited their rights by dint of their criminal convictions. I thought the Military Commissions Act of 09 had language limiting conditions of confinement claims uh, in relation to habeas. Am I totally wrong about that? Um, in, no, so the 06 Act, 06 Act had yeah. language about limited conditions claims through other vehicles. Uh, I see. But, right? but and Amr says, and okay, says gotcha. insofar as Boumediene, you know, invalidates part of the MCA as applied to Guantanamo, Amr says, I think quite people miss this all the time, how important this is. Amr held that the Boumediene decision restores habeas for Guantanamo detainees to the pre-2006 uh, ah, status quo. Okay. Which, by the way, among other things, should also mean that there's jurisdiction, right, in lots more of these cases. Like, you know, the Bagram case was not about the sort of statutes, about the Constitution. Anyway, but I digress. Well, well I, I would say as to that, which is a hugely important one, yes. I'd say what it does is it doesn't restore the jurisdiction. It, it opens it up for debate in the first instance. But Amr says it restores. So I'm just, I, you know, I, maybe... It, yeah. it, re it restores, but it but that question wasn't settled before. Well, no, no. Razul holds that a federal court has jurisdiction over a habeas petition so long as it has personal jurisdiction over the detainee's custodian. And Al-Makala found a way to distinguish no, we didn't talk about it directly. I recognize Al that. Amakla didn't talk about the statute. Amakla just said the suspension clause doesn't apply. Mm, okay, well, I think that uh, it's...
I know. I'm trying to think where this could come up again under our current circumstances. When we hold someone in somewhere else outside the U.S. and he brings a habeas petition and he's not a U.S. citizen. He's not. I was going to say, John Doe doesn't present that case. No, nope, because he's a U.S. citizen. citizen. All right. Anyway, yeah. all this is to say more Guantanamo stuff. And I, by the I, way. I, but, I, but we haven't pro- prognosticated on that. I think it's very unlikely oh, so that the I. courts ultimately are going to order the formation of a mixed medical commission. I agree, although I'm not, supervene I'm not sure the it's medical gonna, decision making of the Gitmo. I'm not sure it's going to be for lack of jurisdiction. No, no, I agree with that. But I think on the merits, which is an easier thing to say, like even if we assume for the sake of argument there is jurisdiction, yep. we're not the army reg is not a judicially enforceable, et cetera. Or they'll say that that's that's a rule. I believe it's framed in terms of POWs. They'll say this is not an international armed conflict. He's not a POW. Or they'll just say he hasn't. Like we're not convinced that the government can't can't satisfy yep. the reg through what it already provides at Guantanamo. Right. That's the easiest route. So. Um, all right. So you know, one last point on Guantanamo. We are still waiting for the Court of Military Commission Review to issue some kind of decision in the Al Nashiri case. Right. Speaking of someone who's not getting the last word. Oh boy. Yeah. So and it's time for our ritual invocation of uh, criticism of the CMCR for, for taking forever when it's super, super, super obvious they don't get the last word anyways. And we would all benefit from kicking this can up to the DC circuit. Please. Just yes. All right. Uh, pivoting away from detainees and to our favorite topic, Trumplandia. We should have theme music we play. <laughs> we work really, on that. We really shouldn't because that means more production work for me. Uh. <laughs> all right. So uh, I think we have three quick hits. Right from Trumplandia. Um, quick hit number one is the so-called Comey memos. Okay, what is this? So I wasn't paying close attention to this because I've kind of you don't just, follow enough right-wing I, conspiracies I, on Twitter. Well, I know you love that stuff. I just, oh yeah, I'm love. a little uh, you know kind of overstuffed with all the uh, Comey Act-related accusations yeah, yeah. Yeah, that fly yeah. around. So tell Comey. me, what is what is the basic claim somebody is making, and it is. It's not just somebody. So there is now a, a, a widely popular theory that the president himself has now tweeted about, although he, by the way, misquotes people. all the, he, he does this thing where he says, you know, Kim Strassel says in the Wall Street Journal, quote, and then the quote is a complete, like, fabrication of what was actually said. All right. <laughs> dog, um, bi- dog bites, man. So the theory is that there are a couple of different things going around. The first theory is that the Comey memos exonerate Trump because there's nothing in the memos that shows that the president directly obstructed justice. To that I say... Congratulations. Yeah, but that's not the, what interests right. me. The, the legal claim okay. people are making. The legal claim people are making is that Comey violated the Espionage Act when he leaked the memos to Dan Richmond, his friend who teaches at Columbia Law School. Um, now, this is where I think we're missing how this all works. So, the memos, Bobby, two of his memos have apparently been retroactively deemed by the Justice Department to be classified. Retroactively, as in after he shared them with Dan. As in after he shared them with Dan. Now, the president okay. the president curiously left that part out of his tweet, right? Sure. Um, well, we can't, we cannot measure things by that. No, but tweets. people do, and this is important, know, right? right? So so let's be clear, right? Um, it may well be that DOJ didn't, that may be factually accurate, right? That is to say, I have no trouble believing that after the fact, DOJ belatedly decided that information in two of the memos should have been classified. One of them, for example, talks about um, uh, Rance Priebus asking Comey if there was, in fact, a FISA warrant for Carter Page, right? The existence of a FISA warrant on a particular target is classified. I'm totally, I, mm-hmm. fine, okay? Does, does Comey actually, in the memo, record the answer to that question? Um, so, because if not, we, we don't if know we're just asking. We don't know because it's redacted. Oh, well, okay. Then <laughs> there's not a problem, I mean, Matt, right? Matt, Tate, Matt Tate has sort of typed in that, like, maybe he answered yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no. But but, but what it actually was released, that is, if if the classified fact, right. it wouldn't be that Rance that Privus, whatever you say his name, 
uh, it wouldn't be that he asked about it. It would be the answer. Did he say yes or no? Now, right. that probably is classified. Listen, again, probably fine. But, but it's, you're saying it's redacted. It's redacted. So what's the problem? Listen, hey, <laughs> what are you doing to me here? Okay. So so the claim is that Comey violated the Espionage Act by leaking these memos. Now, let's just be as clear as – let me say this as in as plain language as I possibly can. It is not a violation of the Espionage Act to disclose information that is not properly classified at the time it was disclosed. And oh, by the way, guess who was an original classification authority at the time he leaked the memos to Dan Richmond? Well, the FBI director. The FBI director. So there's just no credible theory. No, right. Clearly by not. which Comey violated the SBI. Uh, we're backing up to the redaction thing. I realize it may be the redactions in this version that's now been Could released. Could be obscuring. The, the version that was shared with Dan maybe wasn't redacted. Maybe. I, I don't know. So, we, the, so, so what matters, everything is on the timing, which is not disputed. This wasn't classified. Until after Comey was fired. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. The that's memo clear. wasn't classified. That's clear. Yeah. Okay. What, so, about, what about the underlying information? Uh, that's harder because we don't know who said what to whom when. Yeah. I guess – so I'm just trying to put the best face on this. And I can imagine that um, it is certainly the case that the answer to the question, is there a current Title I right. FISA or 702 or anything right. else on person, that's always classified. classified. So that fact – whatever if, – if it was memorialized in the document, and, that might have been – Wait. That might have been – and if that was one of the memos that was leaked to Richmond. Do right? not, is that in dispute too? We, we don't know which memo. Right there, there were like seven memos. We don't know which ones were leaked yeah. and which ones. So so all this is to say, nice try, everybody. No. Um, meanwhile, the other thing that I find interesting is. Well, I, I, can't, I can't. I hate to do this because I hate to lend any credence to what is otherwise obviously a bunch of political nonsense. But if we hypothesize that one of the memos yes. given to Dan by Jim. Uh, was the one that contains the question, is there a FISA right. order for um, Carter Page? Right. And then it actually said, unredacted, Comey said, I said yes or I said no. Right. At that time, that answer he gave may have been a classified fact. Maybe, although that's not the argument that we're hearing from. True. Okay. But there may be a kernel, and this is part of what gives yeah. a lot of uh, I know. Fuel I know. To Trust it. me, There may I know. be a kernel of something Listen, there. this goes back to why I'm, you know, I'm not on the Jim Comey fan club train quite as much as our mutual friend Ben Wittes is. Um, but leave that all aside. The other piece of this that I find remarkable is everyone's saying in the same breath, and it also proves that Comey's a liar, right? To how's which it, I say, how do they? How's it prove that? I don't know, right? Like, because apparently leakers are liars, right? And I want to say, like, you know, two things are true here, right? First, um, no, leaks are often about truthful information, right? Second, it is actually a violation of the governing executive order on classification to classify something that is materially false, right? Unless it is necessary as part of like a deception operation. Right, that is to say, it's not proper to classify information that isn't true because it doesn't meet the criteria for classification. But wait, what's the falsehood that's been classified, and who did it? Well, no, the claim is that the claim is that the memos right contain false information. Oh, and you're saying like if they're saying this was a disclosure of classified information, it's effectively as if they're admitting that it it's had to all be true. true. Right. In order for it to actually be a disclosure of classified, because no one's saying this is yeah. a deception operation, right? So in order for the dis- in order for the first theory yeah. to work, you have to accept the truth of what is memorialized in the memos. What is it that's in them that, that the Trump camp is saying is false? Just like the, st- like the stuff about the dossier and the stuff oh. about like the well, meetings. Okay, so you could, but I think in fairness, you, you could, could split, distinguish right. it. Absolutely. That's false, that's true, that's classified, yeah. this that's, stuff not. that's not. The stuff that's not classified about the dossier or whatever, that's all false. But 
the question of whether Carter Page is the object of a, a, a FISA one title. Yeah, I understand. Listen, FISA title one order yes, could be classified. Sufficiently intelligent lawyers could sit down and parse all of right. this to a fair. And that's well. of course not what's going on. No, right. And the, and the what, what I find really frustrating is no one is actually disputing the factual claims Comey is memorializing. They're just trying to say he has no credibility. He's a liar. It's like fine. Like you can think of Comey what you want. I have my own opinions of him, but. What he wrote in the memos is pretty well darn corroborated. Oh, yeah. No question. Look, I'm, I'm completely on board. Completely on board with your view that, A, this is all basically a bunch of political chaff and cover and smokescreen from the White House. And, B, that what's in the memo seems like all to be pretty well corroborated, if not entirely corroborated. There is this sort of kernel of concern about the one factoid, which may or may not be in the relevant memos. Um, but that's more than enough to set the, the dogs and, and, and apart. Can I, and can I just point out one, one last sort of contrast here, right? So... We're back to the question of whether an original classification authority, right, can violate the Espionage Act by selectively disclosing a piece of classified information. This is exactly the debate over President Trump telling the Russians about the Israelis, right? It's the same argument. And so you cannot believe, right, that Comey violated the Espionage Act by assuming all this, assuming the memo he gave to Dan Richmond is the one that says Carter right. Page is the subject of a FISA warrant. Right. You cannot, you, if, if you believe that that's a violation of the Espionage Act, then so was the president telling the Russians, right, that the Israelis were behind that intelligence operation. So, so Jim was clearly, as director, original classification authority for a vast array of things. Yeah. Would that extend to something that is uh, intertwined with FISA court activity? I, I think so. I mean, we should ask someone who actually knows yeah, more than we do. It's kind of an interesting question. Like, who, who has that call? I would think the FBI director does have the authority in appropriate cases to declassify the existence of a FISA warrant. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe I mean, presumably, it could be the DNI, I, mean, I suppose. But, you know, I mean, listen, the FBI director is subject to supervision by both the attorney general could and the, the president. the attorney general, right? yeah. So, yeah. okay. Anyway. Ugh. All right. So, meanwhile, of things that elsewhere, drive me nuts. elsewhere in Trump land, yeah. Elsewhere in crazy town. Uh, the, the DNC is suing everybody. Tom Perez has decided to uh, try to make further hay. Do you, okay, first of all, do you, is this a serious lawsuit or is this a political move? Yes. Um, it's mostly a political move. I mean, I think the so the you know the the righties are all saying, oh goody, now we get reciprocal now we get reciprocal discovery. We can get their email servers. <laughs> well, that that uh, you get what? Their email servers. The miss Hillary's thirty three thousand emails. Because don't you know that's what the twenty eighteen midterms are going to be about? All right. So uh, who did they sue? They have sued the Russian Federation, the government of Russia. The uh, Russian military intelligence, GRU, uh, Guccifer 2.0, which is sort of a, a collective pseudonym for various GRU operatives, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, the Trump campaign, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Jared Kushner, George Papadopoulos, Gates, John Doe's 1 through 10. I mean, it is... Did they miss anybody? I... Uh, I don't know, Mr. T. It's just, it's a ridiculous list. It's so funny. Um, and I guess... From a serious legal perspective, there are questions of jurisdiction. There will be uh, questions of substantive law at some point. What are the claims? The claims are basically, there's basically two sets of claims. It's all about a an overall conspiracy involving the, uh, the hacking of the DNC servers and then the information operation that was facilitated uh, based on the stolen information. And uh, that in, that's all those particular players come into it. The legal claims include Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, of course, Wiretap Act, Stored Communications Act, Trespass to Chattels. Uh, <laughs> that, that old chestnut. Yeah, I love that. Trade secrets violations, even the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. They've definitely thrown it all in. And then plus a RICO claim depicting the Trump, uh, I believe it was the campaign, as either a, 
a classic racketeering enterprise or an association in fact enterprise. Um, they've obviously thrown all the spaghetti on the wall. Steve, to me, the only right now, the only kind of real legal question that's fit for uh, the scope of our show is they're suing the Russian government and Russian government institutions. It raises a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act question. They think they have an answer. What is, what is the uh, answer they've offered? So in the complaint, they say that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not provide immunity here because the Russian government committed tortious activity on U.S. soil, right? So basically, um, we talked, we've actually talked before about the non-commercial tort exception right. to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which comes up in, for example, the 9-11 families litigation against Saudi Arabia. That, from my reading of the complaint, is what they're relying upon here. Okay, so what's interesting here is I think it's, it's very obvious that what the Russians did, and they certainly did it, uh, was a covert action program. It was uh, espionage facilitated, but then the information operation and the overarching uh, category into which that whole activity falls is covert action. Like if we did this, when, when we might do something like this, that would be categorized as a Title 50 covert action. Um, has there ever been a suit uh, targeting or a suit describing as an actionable tort the covert action activities of a foreign government? Uh, can you think of an as example? Such, I can't as think of such, something. I'm not aware of one. Of course, that is part of the 9-11 family's claim against Saudi Arabia, right, is that they were not officially but indirectly and secretly. Now, not as sort of a formal covert action program of the yeah. Saudi military or intelligence apparatus. Right. But what if, so I guess what I'm wondering is, does it, if we assume that there's uh, no defense if what happened was Russian government officials committed a kind of a classic, you know, vehicular tort or something. Mm. You know, they, they ran red lights right. and, and, and negligence, car accident. But if instead a formal uh, government, a, an act of state, right. a government action, in this case, a covert action, yeah. uh, is that in any way excused from being otherwise tortious? Not textually, right? I mean, there's nothing in the text of the FSIA that I think would, would cover that. Of course, that's not to say that, you know, you won't see efforts to try to read into the text some kind of distinction. And just to be clear, denials of foreign sovereign immunity are immediately appealable, right? So even if the district court is disinclined to, to, to recognize such a defense, Bobby, um, nothing would stop the Russian government from taking it all the way up before we ever got to discovery against them as opposed to the private defendants. Very interesting. All right, so watch that space. It's obviously, you know, it's, it's nine parts political and, and appearances in, in stoking the, the Trump-Russia conspiracy uh, fires, but uh, that doesn't mean it won't have some legal legs. And what's, of course, interesting, as you adverted to earlier, what if it gets to discovery? Never mind the reciprocal discovery demands. Um, what would it mean in terms of trying to pry further information out that then might leak out into the public regarding campaign activities? Indeed. Um, speaking of information that might leak out into the public, right, there's been some movement on the Mueller protection legislation, even though Mitch McConnell says over my dead, but well, he doesn't say over my dead body, but he says over my... He says, he says there's no need for it. No need. Not necessary. Not happening on my watch. Um, yeah, it's, he's obviously, we've talked about this before, he's, yes. he's trying to avoid... St- uh, poking a stick in the eye of the White House. Yeah, it might be time for the stick. It might be time for the stick. So so the markup is apparently on Thursday. My understanding is that Chairman Grassley is actually offering a pretty thoroughgoing amendment um, that's going to have one controversial piece. Apparently, there are going to be notification requirements that require the special counsel and or attorney general, again, in this case, acting attorney general Rosenstein, to file relatively frequent reports with the chair and ranking member of the two judiciary committees. Um, I'm a little skittish about that, not because I don't trust 
those folks, I mean, this isn't Devin Nunes after all, um, but because I do worry about the specter of Congress micromanaging a criminal investigation. But assuming that it's, that's not meant as a poison pill, right? Assuming that we're just trying to figure out a, a good equipoise, yeah. I suspect compromise could be reached on how much notification and when. I think the uh, the attractiveness or harmfulness of a report to Congress periodically mechanism for a special counsel depends a lot on how granular does the statute demand that that report right. be. So, for example, the existing regulation requires the special counsel to seek the permission and approval of the attorney general if he wants to expand the scope of his, the jurisdictional scope of his, of his investigation. Mm -hmm. This is a really important distinction from the independent counsel statute where the IC could do it himself. Right. Um, I could live right with a with a with a, a language in the statute that said any time the attorney general approves or rejects a scope expansion request, yeah. right? Thirty to sixty days thereafter, he's got to report on that to Congress because that's a good marker as opposed to which witnesses were being interviewed, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Which defendants were being pursued. You know, I think I think the scope of jurisdiction actually that's a great example of something that I would consider a very nice addition. Um, just you know, for those who aren't sure they want. Rosenstein and, and Mueller to have to deal with that. Well, would you have wanted Ken Starr to deal with that, right. perhaps? Right. I mean, it could have been a huge, it could have been very helpful if in 1995 or whatever, right? Yeah. Starr had to actually report. Anyway, all I'm saying is um, the markup's going to be very fascinating. I'm curious to see if any other members, especially maybe Republicans, try to sort of introduce poison pills because it look, you know, if Grassley's on board, it looks like this thing has a pretty good chance of getting out of committee. Right. All right. So we'll see what happens there. And then one last note yeah, from Trumplandia. Yeah. Apparently, the nomination of Admiral Jackson to be Secretary of the VA is in deep trouble because apparently no one vetted him. What? And there are all kinds of concerns about like mismanagement and sexual harassment and other kinds of things that would be disqualifying if you did a proper vet. Yikes. Um, I hadn't heard any details. I knew there was rumors uh, circulating about unspecified management issues. I hadn't heard anything about sexual harassment. Yeah, uh, that was in the Washington Post this morning. Ooh. So good stuff. Ooh, boy. Okay, well, um, we promised that we would give a shout out to the Boy bands. No, no, no. We're not to boy bands yet. we got to oh. talk about this really cool um, collection oh, of information. We're going long today. Maybe well, we'll say boy bands for next week. We, we promise we're going to do it, so let's do it. Um, the uh, work in question here is by uh, Rebecca Ingber, along with Alonzo uh, Gramendi Dunkelberg, Priya Pillai, and Alvina Pothalet. They've put at Just Security a collection of statements from a variety of countries laying out where those countries uh, stand on the legality of the U.S.-British-French airstrikes against Syria for uh, in response to chemical weapons usage. And it's, it's really cool because it's given you um, some concrete easily collected and, and easily accessed uh, sense of, is there sort of a, a rising tide of support for the idea of what the British have touted as what amounts to a at least a WMD, if not a larger humanitarian exception uh, to uh, to Article 2.4? Um, and, and I guess the long and short of it is, not really. So you've got the UK certainly advancing that legal position as we've previously discussed. Uh, France has adverted in a general way to the legality, although I'm not sh quite sure they're really saying it was legal so much as saying that this is good for law, that we did this, and that's not quite the same thing. Um, the United States has has not really at all tried to defend it as, as legal. Russia and Syria, of course, have denied its legality. And so the question is, what about everybody else? And they've got a nice ongoing collection of statements, um, some highlights. There are there are 19 states, at least, other than the ones just mentioned, who've applauded the strikes but have not actually done so while claiming that they were legal under the charter. Uh, there have been nine other states, including uh, you know such great 
options as Cuba, Venezuela, joining Russia and Syria, but in fairness, also some other much more responsible states uh, that are denying the legality of the strikes. Mm -hmm. And and then there are a bunch of others that are not uh, pinned down one way or the other. So check that out. It's on Just Security. And uh, I think that'll be an ongoing collection over time. It's a great question about, like, can you form, like, you know, opinion juris, right, the formation of international practice. These kinds of projects, I think, could actually be very helpful in Helping to helping to create a database of opinion euros. Absolutely, you know, and and clearly, you know, you, what you do not have here is anything close to uh, a strong case for saying that a, a majority or an overwhelming majority of states have decided that this is now an unwritten exception to Article Two Four. Um, what you have instead, as Monica Kimi has pointed out, is in the more complex situation in which uh, it seems like for the most part. Everyone who's applauding it is doing so without claiming it's lawful. So what does that mean for the normative status of the rule? Um, It certainly means complexity. All right. Last. Boy bands. Boy bands. All right. So Billboard has, (laughs) uh, has done some pretty good clickbait here. They've announced the top 100 boy band songs of all time. And, of course, as we've seen before, to me, what's great about this is it invites a question about defining the doctrinal category. The category in question is boy bands. What are the parameters that make a musical act a boy band um, as opposed to a group that happens to have an all-male all lineup? Right. And uh, and this is brought into sharp relief by some of the bands that showed up in the top five. Are, are we a boy band? Uh, no, because there's only two of us. I think a duet can't be. Well, that's an important, I mean, again, right? Hey, we're not musical enough. Well, you are. Uh, but not in this context. <laughs> uh, so a duet is excluded, it seems. And I think that's fair because I think band, uh, impl- well, <laughs> okay, let's start getting into it. Do, <laughs> numeric, first variable, numerical. If it's a two-person act, is it a band? Genuinely two-person act, like the White Stripes. Right. Often that was just uh, you know Jack White and his sister, and that's two people. They were a band, so maybe just, I, two. I, is think, enough. I think band is more than one. Okay, it's, it's got to be more than one. That's for sure. What if it's what if it's one person and then just a rotating cast of unnamed? Yeah, it's still a band. It's still a band. Okay. Um, the all-male lineup, this is a gendered thing, the whole idea of the boy band label. What makes a boy band? What would you say are the, the qualities that, that – what comes to mind when you hear like, hey, there's this boy band? So first boy, right? So we need like an age limit. Sort of a youth, like, a youth like yeah, teenagers. The, the, the two youths, the right? The two youths. I, th- I think no, er, everyone has to youths. be like, I would say, 23 or younger. Okay, so there's a, there's this is the old menudo right. uh, problem, right? right like right. when do you age out of it? Right. Okay, but there's this you at least are the trappings of being teenage boys. Yes, right. Okay. Um, now there's an interesting question: Does this does the musical genre matter to whether it's a boy band? So, for example, yeah. like four guys, you know, four 18 year olds playing the violin is that a boy band? So I think that one of the qualities that that has to be a necessary condition is vocals and harmony were the main thing. There's an interesting question about this one thing, but it's got to be primarily about a multi-member musical voice performance. Now, obviously, there'll be backing music, but the the band members are known because they're all singing. (laughs) Now, question, do they all have to dance too? What if they sing, what if they all sing? There's lots of harmony, but I I think a boy band can involve no dancing. Really? I I, I'm know. going on a limb here. Okay. It may have changed over time. What about if they play instruments? Because the classic boy bands, they're not playing any instruments. Well, so, so, so four or five so, dudes so let's talk about dancing the, So let's talk about who's in the who's – in, let's, let's use the billboard list. All right. So this is this is why it's problematic. Number five, NSYNC. Okay. Right. So wait. 
I think no matter what the hell our criteria are, NSYNC is a boy band. It's a paradigmatic boy band. Indeed. It's, it's, a, it's a core band. Indeed. All right. So JT and, and the rest with Tearing Up My Heart. Not necessarily the one I would have gone with. What would you have gone with? I don't know. but um, Tear, So to Tearing Up My Heart, this I promise you. No, this I promise you is like a ballad. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Anyway. Yeah, and people say we focus too much on like you know macho sports talk on this frivolity. Here segment. we are showing off our our boy go. band, our boy band side number four, uh, One Direction with What Makes You Beautiful, which is I think it's a great call. That's a classic boy band, but with a little bit of musical instruments thrown in there. Yeah, I also yeah. feel like you don't have like multiple singers. Like, oh like, no, no, I think they, I think yeah, they've got I that. They they've they got do. that. Look, okay. I've heard. I, I got teenagers. Yeah, I've heard right. a lot of One right. Direction. All right, One Direction. They totally count. I'll number that. three. I'll allow it. This, I nearly swerved off the road when they said this. And number three was the Beatles with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah, I mean, listen, no. I think that's a category error, the right? The Beatles are not a boy band. I understand that, like, by yes, there were four teenage boys, right? And they're, know, super and they're super in popular in the pop genre of their time. But but I just, I, I don't, I can't, def- I can't articulate the criteria that explains why NSYNC is and the Beatles aren't. Because they're all playing instruments, all and four not, of them. And they're not and dancing. And they're not dancing at all. Okay. But but I think that but if you go all back playing to 1961, 62, I forget exactly which Wait, year. But, but all all playing instruments. What about Boys to Men? Were they? I don't they know. They did not all play instruments. So no, I think. Oh wait, this wait. goes to genre. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. So mm. so does like R and B like somehow not? So you're not a so vocal so group. So you're not, not so you're not a boy band if you all play instruments. I think that if you're if you've got yeah if you're all singing but you're all playing instruments that didn't sound like boy band to me. Okay. But but I'm willing to hedge a little bit I, listen, there. I don't know why. I do think you got to dance. I, I, I don't think the Beatles are out. On I don't know why grounds. the Beatles are a category error, but they're a category error. Here's here's a test. How about there's sort of a there's sort of an insult implied when yeah. you categorize someone as a boy band. But a lot of people, especially those who only like the you know the mature, say, they're very rich. Uh, you know, later Beatles, they they, they dismiss <laughs> the early bubblegum pop right. stuff and right. say like, yeah, that was totally well, boy so, band. So certainly, even if the even if the early Beatles were a boy band, right by the time of Sgt. Pepper. They're not a boy band. Anymore. No, no, and no one, no one claims that. And it's I hope just Marty's like, right. listening because I think Marty's going to get a kick. <laughs> oh out gosh, of this. Marty's going to go. Even. Okay, so the monkeys created as a, <laughs> and this introduces another variable. Are boy bands only the ones where some Simon Cowell figure has orchestrated the whole thing and said, "You guys don't know each other, but I, I'm making you." It's a corporate product. No, I think they're kind of an accidental boy band. Yeah. Okay. Um, up next, number two was the Jackson Five with "I Want You Back." Great song. I mean, I want you back is one of the great. I mean, right. Uh, here's the thing: they it is like a lot of vocals, and there's some good dancing good too. Dancing. They're not all playing instruments. There, is there? It, and this gets to the genre deal. Is it like, well, somehow is, is it sort of a? Is it, I'm not sure. I would even. I think it's an interesting question. Did you call Jackson Five Motown? Um, but does that somehow exclude it? It's interesting though. I mean, Michael was real young back then. I don't know how old everybody was, but. They were kids. That was the whole shtick. Right? Again, I can't tell you why I think it's a category the error. The greatness exception? It feels, yeah. Like, it, you, the Jackson 5, I mean, yes, they were a band of yeah. boys, right? But. <laughs> All right. So there's a greatness exception. Number one, of course, the Backstreet Boys with I Want It That Way. <laughs> I want it that way. Yeah, yeah, I want it that way, I think, is the... That's iconic. The iconic boy band song. Although, yeah. you know... Although less dancey for them. Oh, by the way, I was thinking of the NSYNC, the NSYNC song should be in there. Instead what? of Tearing Up My Heart, I Want You Back. Okay, there I, you want you, I think I Want You Back is a more iconic NSYNC song than Tearing Up My Heart. Um, I will accept that. And I think I Want It That Way is a perfectly good number one. Backstreet Boys, certainly an you iconic... You are my fire. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was hoping I could draw you out. Oh, that is so good. If you, All right. If you listen to one hour and 13 minutes of our podcast today, you got to hear me sing Backstreet Boys. That is so great. On that note, we will stop. Um, stay safe out there. I hope I didn't just cause any car accidents. Follow us on Twitter at Bobby Chesney, at Steve underscore Vladek, and at NSL Podcast. And tell your friends, except maybe not about these last five minutes. And go listen to a boy band right now. <laughs> Talk to you later. Adios.